0: Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now here's your host, Tom Singer. Hey there, you have come across another episode of Making Waves at Sea Level, Thank you so much for coming along on the journey of this show that is now almost 650 episodes over six and a half years. Uh, I started the show. It was originally called Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. And today's guest has actually been a guest before when we used to have that title of the podcast. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, I've just seen a lot of changes in the podcasting world. It's been a lot of fun to actually have the chance to interview over 600 business leaders, and learn from them about the trends that are happening, uh, what makes the world tick, and for me, it's kind of been like my own little personal university of access to really smart people. And today is going to be one of those shows where we're going to get like a little masterclass. But before we get started, I have to thank the first sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Stanton Chase International one of the leading global executive search firms, serving as trusted advisors to help companies build their senior leadership teams. Now, in full disclosure, I now work for Stanton Chase International. I like to make sure people know that, but uh, they are a great company to work for, and I'm learning a lot about the space of executive search. So today, I've got Mike Smirklow, and Mike is really one of these super cool, interesting, eclectic people. He's an entrepreneur. He used to live out in the Silicon Valley. He bought and ran and took public a company. And he now runs a venture capital firm right here in Austin, Texas. And he is the somewhat recent author of a book, a book called Mr. Monkey and Me, A Real Survival Guide for Entrepreneurs. And it's a really cool story about his book as well. So, Mike, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Um, It's good to be here. Thanks for having me again.
0: Nice. So let's go backwards. Let's go back to the company that you bought, ran, and took public. Uh, what was that all about? What was that company and what was the experience like?
1: Yeah. So the quick preamble of that was I had actually been working in Silicon Valley. I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur, didn't have any great ideas, um, had taken this job, uh, my first operating job working for Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz of LoudCloud, Cloud, Opsware, now Andreessen Horowitz fame. Uh, Mark actually personally recruited me to come be an early employee there. So I got to jump in and see startup chaos. I was there right after the company raised its first round of capital all the way through IPO. and Then I quit and I wanted to be an entrepreneur. The only challenge was I I didn't have a good idea, so I took a different path called a search fund where you raise a small pool of capital, you hole up into an office and back in, this is 2001 timeframe, you just make cold calls and try and find a business to buy. I got very fortunate. I, I found a business in downtown San Francisco called ServiceSource. I bought it when it was about 30 employees, and then ran it uh, for the next 12 plus years. Took it from a $5 million revenue company to about $300 million in revenue. It did, and uh, still exists and still publicly traded. But I saw that whole journey, and was very fortunate along the way to work with amazing folks, experience uh, raising private capital, and then public capital, and being a public company CEO for. Good three and a half years, and then I uh, retired somewhat, moved to Austin, and started Next Coast Ventures.
0: So, what's it like to grow a company in that CEO role from call it five million dollars to thirty million dollars? That's that's a big jump, even even in you know twelve years.
1: Well, yeah, I was, I'm sorry, it was three hundred million, so it was five to three hundred. Yeah. Oh, um, I'm sorry, what? I don't yeah, know what yeah. I said, but yeah, that's you said what, third, that, yeah, no, but it's, it was it was a wild ride. I mean, I, I liken it, and I talk about this in the book, Mister Monkey Me, which is by, to be clear, it was not a. It's not a history of my career, because that would be a short blog post at best. This is actually more of a a learnings from across the spectrum of, of sources about entrepreneurship. But to me, it was the epitome of just the ups and downs is the only way I would describe it. I worked with amazing people. I learned a ton. I made a bunch of mistakes. But the biggest takeaway for me over that period was just how many, it's like being on a roller coaster for a long period of time and it never stops. The hills change, they get steeper or there's different banks or challenges. And and certainly as a personal, as a leader, you're constantly forced to change and grow. But the, uh, the waves or the hills or whatever analogy you want to put in there never stop coming. Uh, and it's exhausting, exhilarating, and I think the best job I ever had and likely ever will have.
0: So is it hard to walk away from the leadership role in a $300 million company?
1: It was. It uh, wasn't at first because I was so doggone tired. Uh, I think that's the other thing. I didn't, you know, the book talks about mental aspects and mental strength and entrepreneurship, most of which I didn't do. Uh, so it's more like, you know, do as I say, not as I do. But I was just, I was burnt out. I was exhausted. It had been a heck of a run um, and financially rewarding and all that. But my wife and I just had our fourth child you know, it was just, it was a lot going on. And so at first to walk away was not that hard because I just enjoyed doing nothing. I think I was like, uh, the I don't know. It was like, I just sat around and watched Gilligan's Island for a couple of days or something. I don't know what I did, but I just zoned <laughs> out. Um, and then I finally started to get back and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to start this firm. I would say that the difference is the, high, I really missed the team building. I missed the leadership opportunities. Uh, there's nothing better than the win you get when you close a big customer, or sign a great new executive, and you look around your team and you say, we did it, or, or that sense of accomplishment. Um, but on the flip side, I don't miss laying awake at 3 in the morning wondering how I'm going to make my quarter or some new competitors come to the marketplace. Those, those memories I tend not to uh, – I don't miss those, those moments.
0: So I call the show Making Waves at Sea Level. To grow a company at that level, you had to shake some things up and make some waves. What, what did you do with the company from the time you bought it over the next you know, decade plus that really sort of changed the face of, of how you approached your industry?
1: Yeah, I tend to think, and it was, we were creating new category. And so I think that there's there are certain step functions that you do. I and mean, first part was just professionalizing. And I think that's the hard part when you're doing emerging growth, which is just how do you take things that you're doing really well and then repeat it? at scale, uh, which is again, one of those concepts that sounds easy, but harder to do. So if we're, if we got one good salesperson, how do we get to 15? Or if we're delivering customer excellence in this category, how can we ingrain that into software or processes? So that was kind of the first wave of the movie at Source. Uh, I think that got us to about hundred million. Uh, And then we really started to focus on new growth opportunities Uh, along the way. There was obviously brand creation and marketing that went with that but we really expanded aggressively internationally. It was a, a ripe market for us. And by the time I retired, a third of our revenue came from international. And then I think, you know, the, the, the other part of this, and I'm sure you see it with all the great people you have on your podcast, it's this constant pace of innovation. And that's something that even got more daunting, but I don't think, I do like the old adage of you're either growing or you're, or you're dying. And in our case, we had to look at how we could augment a largely human centric solution with technology. And so we started developing robust analytic frameworks and then eventually developed our own standalone software product to kind of cannibalize what we were doing through labor. Uh, So that was what we did at that company. And I think it's just universal, especially now, as Mark Andreessen said, 10 years ago, software is eating the world. I think it's eating every part of the world. There's still a long way to go, but if you're not thinking about innovation digital transformation or other forms of disruption. Um, And as a leader, I think you're really not going to be in the job very long.
0: Well, it's interesting you bring up constant innovation. And I think that that's more important in today's world than ever, right? So, you know, how long is it since you've been here in Austin with the venture capital firm?
1: Uh, We started it five years ago.
0: Okay. So, you know the first 4 of those 5 years you know life was what life was and then a year ago the pandemic hit so let's talk about some of the changes that have happened to the world of business and entrepreneurship over the course of the last year i mean if if constant innovation wasn't important before
1: i think we've certainly experienced that the last 4 months am i right oh i couldn't agree more i mean actually i think 2020 will go down in a lot of ways as the you know there was tragedy of the global pandemic we had social unrest. We had political unrest. It was a hard year for everybody. And then, you know, throw in some ice, good old isolation and, and work from home. So social isolation. So really challenging year. But on the flip side, I think we may look back as 2020 and say it was a pivotal point for a bunch of mega trends to really accelerate. We've been spending a lot of time at Nexco Ventures putting things into three categories. And we, we call this the, the old clash song. Should I stay or should I go? And, and what are the things that are the first bucket are, as soon as we have vaccinations at scale, we're going to return to normalcy. On the other end of the scale, there's the things that I don't we don't think will ever go back, and then there's stuff in the middle. Um, and so, to give some examples, I think in the first bucket, how badly do you want to go see a live music concert or a sporting event or travel without worry? That's all going to come roaring back, and it's starting to already. And then the other extreme, and I think this is where you're going, there were some mega trends, and we do a lot of thematic research, but future of work, future of retail, healthcare, and how that changes. There were a bunch of things that were in motion, trends that got accelerated by a decade. And telehealth is a good example. Telehealth has been around where you could go see a doctor online for over a decade. You take a pandemic, you thrust in a whole new different behavioral changes, and now you say to a consumer, do you want to drive across, you know, 35 minutes across town, sit in the lobby, wait for your doctor, hope he or she has relevant information and, and gives you real advice? Or do you want to dial up, go online and, and see a doctor? Mm-hmm. It's a no brainer. And so I think there's a bunch of things in that third category, trends that were already in motion or beginning at motion and just got accelerated. Uh, well, Future I, of Work is another example. So yeah, it's 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 been pretty wild. I think 2020, for all its negative will go down as a year where a bunch of things just got jump started in magnitudes.
0: I think the healthcare is a, a perfect example because there's certain things where you kind of probably should go see the doctor, and there's certain things they can totally take care of by by telehealth. I I ended up I went to Costa Rica for Christmas and I, I got a bug bite that got some sort of a bacteria into it. Which, by the way, you don't really want to be in Central America and get a bacteria. Now, nah. I'll just tell you, it, it, you know, <laughs> they 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 tried to put me on several different things of antibiotics. Fortunately, it wasn't an aggressive one. But uh, it took a couple of, of tries, and after two medic, you know, uh, telemed appointments, doctor and I decided, yeah, maybe you should come in and we'll take a culture. Um, and it, you know, it all worked out great. Uh, but you know, there's sometimes you have to go in. That was probably a pretty good time to to take care of that. But uh, most of the other things in the last year, you know, I've been able to handle everything through a telemedicine appointment for everybody in our family. So I think that there are. Uh, I don't. I don't think that trend's going to go away. Now, then you bring up the future of work. What do you think is going to happen there? What are the trends when it comes to people working from home and some of the other future of work ideas that are out there?
1: Yeah, I think there's going to be a a tremendous amount of innovation around there. It's one of the themes that we focus on at Nexus was we had this trend theme five years ago, future of work. but At that time, it was more around how do you start to measure, monitor, and location was one aspect of it. I personally think this is a personal Mike Smirklow observation. I think physical presence will still be a really important part of culture of establishing uh, uh, the way the company operates and sharing best practices and learning and strategy. I think it ends up in a hybrid model, though. I don't think the world of, hey, everyone has to be in this office and drive from the suburbs, wherever. I think that's gone away forever. Um, But I also think the distributive nature, never come to an office, all Zoom is equally exhausting. Mm -hmm. So our view is that it goes to the middle. And then the question becomes, what changes with the hybrid model? And I think it will be more of a hoteling concept. You'll have more of, hey, we're going to do an all hands on Tuesday and a product kickoff on Thursday. We need you in the office for that or the location for that. So I think there'll be um, a hybrid. I think the real innovation opportunities are and leadership opportunities are, well, how do you manage? How do you establish goals? How do you check employee productivity? How do you communicate and build culture? And what does that physical infrastructure look like? That's where I think oh, there's going to be a tremendous amount of innovation. Uh, and so our, person, our our firm view is it's going to be somewhere in the middle, but I don't think anybody has a clear picture or answer of like, it's going to look like X. And it may not. There may be 20 different variants that work for various companies of st- stages and sizes.
0: Well, and, and I have an acquaintance who already kind of experienced the fact that thinking it was going to go all the way one way, uh, moved out of the Silicon Valley and moved to Tahoe just because it was away from the city and, you know, he could raise his kids there and it was a different different lifestyle. And then he was up for a promotion and it went to somebody else. And in discussion afterwards, it was like, well, they've been in the office, you know, and, and yeah. you know, been around with that, even though most everybody was remote, they were active, you know, in the local culture. And while the company supported people moving away, didn't have a problem with it, he didn't get the promotion and he thinks it's because he moved away. And so now he's I, I, like, great, now we get to move back to the Silicon Valley.
1: <laughs> well, I think there's two factors to that. I think, one, there's things that are fun in the short term and maybe not so enjoyable in the medium term. And I think it was refreshing. Uh, listen, I had a great year from a family perspective, playing, you know, Uno with my daughter during her lunch break from school and I could schedule a lunch break. That's a magical experience that I'll never have again. Having said that, I think when you look at getting up every morning, going and staring at a computer for eight, nine, 12 hours, and then doing that over and over again with limited interactivity. I think that's where it starts to get old. And then secondarily, I think that competitive point is really interesting. I was talking to another friend of mine who's in your space. And he said, listen, if it's a big, a big uh, CEO search, right, and my competitor is willing to get on a plane and meet with the company, and I'm not, I'm probably going to lose, And maybe that's not accurate, but I think there is a competitive element or a uh, human connection element that is still important. It's still in our our genes, if you will. And I don't think that can be overlooked either.
0: Absolutely. And and even with my, you know, having gone to work in executive search, I'm still speaking for companies and doing training. I haven't walked away from that side of my life. And it's interesting because what I teach is this whole human connection thing. So I'm interviewing as many people as I can about where do things go and I will tell you as a speaker for a long time uh early into the pandemic people were predicting wrongly I think that live events where speakers get up on the stage and 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 do a keynote that that was going to go away that there was no reason to do it because we were getting all the information by sitting on a Zoom meeting but I can tell you as someone who presented and and you know at dozens of conferences via Zoom or other platforms The reality was, as a speaker, it wasn't as fulfilling for me because there wasn't that interaction with the audience. And I think audiences felt that, too, because you couldn't afterwards go up to the speaker in the bar. I mean, usually, you know, people would line up afterwards with specific questions or or adding adding a piece to my story. And, you know, I got very few emails from people afterwards saying, oh, let me add something to your story. Whereas when you're there in person, there's so many different things you could do. And now the prediction is, is that, uh, yeah, live events are are coming back and they're going to come back real strong as soon as it's safe.
1: I think that's dead on, Tom. And I actually think, listen, the other thing, the, the subdivision might also be by function. I think if you're a, a engineering, a deep tech engineer, and you have stand-ups where you talk about the product on Zoom, and then you go code for seven, eight hours a day, you may be able to do that from Tahoe or wherever, and, and you probably should. I think that in my own experience, too, and I did a book club, and I did a board meeting last week. One was virtual, one was in person because everyone was vaccinated. The book club virtual, to your point, speaking to 40 people on a Zoom. Ah, wow, that was tough. And I had great empathy for professors or teachers that have been doing this now for 12 months, versus a board meeting. We did a first board meeting last Friday in Austin. And you know, we still did social distancing and wore masks, but we're in person. And the CEO came out and he said, Holy cow, that is a world of difference. I got to see what people were leaning in and leaning out. I, I could pick, you know, all those aspects that just we've had to endure. But I don't think that people want to live in a world where we never back uh, together. So, yeah, I, I think there's a big, big chunk of the economy that comes roaring back.
0: Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with that. So let's talk about the investment world, right? You're, you're a venture capitalist. You've been doing this a long time. You On the previous side of your life, you've raised a bunch of money. So, what's going on in the world of the pandemic for companies who are trying to raise money, whether they're a small company that's looking for venture money or a larger company who's looking for a different infusion of cash? What, what's happening there?
1: Well, I think the technical term is bonkers right now, Tom. So you can use that one. Uh, it's a little bit bonkers right now. I, I do think so. The good news is, for Next plays, we're tending to we're we're investing in companies outside of the coast. We're doing earlier stage, Series A, Series B, technology investing. Uh, great opportunity and continue to meet amazing entrepreneurs. Having said that, what is happening is inflation of every asset class across the board. And this may be one of those, I feel like it's one of these things like in three years, I'm going to be sitting back going, I should have sold everything as soon as I said that. But we're just watching and trying to figure out what to do with prices from the public markets to the private markets, housing markets, you name it, where they aren't being inflated I think the other thing we're just trying to figure out from an investment perspective is prices therefore are at all time highs and it's not just real estate. It's everything in supply chain. Uh, Materials are lumbers at an all time high, for example, and then you go to labor. And I think this is a real issue that we're all trying to figure out is labor is in short supply and it's gotten really expensive. So every one of our portfolio companies, 60 plus at this point across uh, you know, not just central Texas, but around the middle, middle part of the United States, everyone has open recs that they can't fill. Every company is looking at how much more they should be paying uh, prospective employees, and then also looking at their current employees and saying, are we paying enough to keep them? It just turned into a hyper-competitive labor market, and I think that has some ramifications that perhaps fully aren't being taken into an account. into your leadership, if I'm a, running a company right now, uh, it's it's a real challenge to think about how I'm going to maintain and grow my workforce without just spending tremendous amounts of monies. That's that's where the bonkers term comes in from my perspective.
0: <laughs> well, and and you talk about these Series A and Series B companies. I mean, from the outside looking in, a lot of people might think, oh, well, the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of that growth, right? You'd think, I mean, it, it's sort of like if if you haven't touched the world of growth-oriented companies and entrepreneurship and labor markets and things like that, it it might be a natural assumption people make that, oh, well, this has been a horrible year in that world. But you're saying it's bonkers. So what do you think has created this boom?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think the the venture we, we joke, we took everyone took like not not took off, but took like 90 day break. It was last April or March. And so March, April, May, everyone kind of sat on their hands and said, geez, how bad this is going to be. And then it quickly shifted to, okay, what does this do and where, where might this bring pockets of opportunity? And I think the one thing that really got moved forward and it's good for my business was this digital transformation. And so any company that a year ago or 15 months ago wasn't thinking about how to service their customers, whether it be a restaurant, whether it be a, a local retailer, to even... Um, a service-based company, if you weren't thinking about how you should have differently with digital transformation, you really got squashed in the pandemic. On the flip side, I think you saw innovation you never imagined. We had local restaurants that were suddenly switching over to delivery and embracing a bunch of technologies. So I think what's caused the significant inflow of capital and has been extraordinary into early stage technology is a realization that innovation is happening. It's happening super fast. There were a lot of things that people had to rethink, as we talked about earlier, and that can be a risk, but it can be a massive opportunity. And it's that massive opportunity part that's really, really brought venture and early stage investing uh, just a tremendous amount of capital has gone into the category.
0: Well, it's interesting because the term digital transformation gets thrown around a lot. Could you give kind of a, a your definition of that?
1: Well, I think it's, yeah, it's it's good. It's good clarification or double click down. I think it's both. I'd put it in a different category, which is both defense and offense. I think there's always long been thought of, there used to be a thought even 10 years ago of, well, there's some companies that are technology and non-technology. That That's a pretty good old clarification. And listen, if you're in the, um, I don't know what, I don't even mean, trucking anymore, but there are certain categories where you'd say, hey, we're a non-technology company And maybe we use technology in our back office or to make our business more efficient, but we're a trucking company. We don't really invest heavily in technology. Okay, well, now you have electronic vehicles. And now you have to start thinking about what would a world look like where you had a fleet of electronic vehicles, uh, trucks, for example, To, to use a long tail example out of my way out of my depth of knowledge. But my point is, is that it used to mean using information technology to be more efficient. Now I think it's offense. And so any category of company, if you're a restaurant company, how are you servicing your customers? Are you delivery? Are you doing things? Are you using uh, Grubhub? Whatever it is, uh, how are you using that to service your customers? And that's just one category. I I can't think of a company off the top of my head right now where reimagining your customer experience, reimagining your interactivity with your customers, and then how you acquire customers and not using digitalization around that. I can't think of a category of company that doesn't have that, same challenge and opportunity. And to me, that's the big, the big change from call it five to seven years ago, if that makes sense.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, Yesterday I interviewed for a different show. I interviewed a guy by the name of Steven Shapiro and he's an expert on innovation. And what he talked about was going on in the world in the last year and and maybe starting before the pandemic, but certainly, you know, hyperspeed since then. And he called it that you have to be innovating innovation. Like innovation used to mean one thing, and what it means now for all of these companies is, are you innovating your innovation? And I thought that was, you know, it, it's kind of a, 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 it could be, you know, looked at as, oh, that's just a word play. But in reality, he said the way companies have to innovate is now all new.
1: Yeah. Well, and there's also a bunch of tools. I mean, whatever happens in technology, it's kind of a 10 year wave. There's a bunch of things that start off early that don't really hit mainstream and they tend to all come together. And the last time that happened was 10 years ago. When you think about mobile and then social and, you know, suddenly we had iPhones and, and then you have Uber, right? You have geolocation, like five or thing, six things had to come together for that to become a reality. I think we've got a whole nother wave around that with machine learning, with AI. I do think blockchain to get very technical, you know, more technical. But the, these technologies have been around for a while and they're starting to get more mainstream as they come together. Um, And then robotics, throw that in there. You could have a whole different view. I'm sure we will in 10 years. My job's trying to figure out which ones will be uh, two years, 10 years, or 100 years. But I just think we're at that cusp of a bunch of trends coming together. And it's going to disrupt a whole lot of businesses. Mm -hmm. So,
0: Mike, I've got a couple more questions for you. But first, I have to thank the other sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache. Out of starting your own podcast, they set you up with the right equipment, training and guidance to ensure you sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience and interviewing really cool people who are making waves in business like Mike Smirklow. Hey, if you want to start a podcast and I know I know that some of you do jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, Mike, you decided to write a book and you've been writing a blog for a long time and you decided to write this book. It's called Mr. Monkey and Me. It's a real survival guide for entrepreneurs. What caused you to write the book and and why do entrepreneurs want to read this?
1: Well, I think it's a little bit like when I started to become an entrepreneur, if I knew how hard it was going to be, I probably <laughs> wouldn't have done it. But um no, the reason that I wrote the book and I think it relates to the second question is I uh, became obsessed or more obsessed with the mental aspect of entrepreneurship and a lot of things that I did OK and a lot of things I screwed up. And so I sat back and I, I used to write. I still do write under Mike's about what I used to call the TOS, the other stuff uh, around entrepreneurship, which was there's a whole host of content out there that can tell you how to write a business plan or how to try and raise capital or what a pitch deck should look like. That's interesting and helpful. And then there's another stuff that I don't think is interesting or helpful, which is all the, the hacks, um, you know, how to, how does Elon Musk start his day or what, what does Jeff Bezos eat for breakfast, which mean nothing to the average entrepreneur 99.99% of the people, you know, the two richest men in the world. I really don't care what they do before 6am. It has nothing to do with, with me and the, the uh, landscaping business I'm trying to start. So I I really saw this void where no one was talking in a way that was practical about the mental aspect of entrepreneurship. And that's why I wrote the book. The book is um, filled with some colorful anecdotes about my own experience. It also pulls together a lot of experiences that I had working with Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz when I started my operating career and now at Next Coast with over 50 plus investments. What do we see as a mental tools that great entrepreneurs use and try and point out some very specific things that current or aspiring entrepreneurs can do to to really increase their mental tenacity, to get through the ups and downs I talked about earlier. And then also when you do achieve that success, how do you keep your head about it? That's the real purpose for the book and, and why I wrote it.
0: And I assume if people want the book, it's available on Amazon and everywhere people get books?
1: Yep. You can go to, so at at mikesmerklo.com, you can go see, get a free chapter. You can take an entrepreneur's quiz and then link it is on Amazon. I'd also be remiss if I didn't point out that all the proceeds of this book go to a charity that my wife and I set up for to help underrepresented and diverse students interested in entrepreneurship, uh, get, be able to afford to go to school. So all the proceeds go to that charity. Um, and there's some, you know, good reviews and good materials out there on Amazon and my website.
0: Nice. And I love the idea of a charity that helps, you know, people go to school who might otherwise not have that opportunity, who have that interest in, in, uh, in entrepreneurship. Tell us more about the charity.
1: Well, the charity is basically at Miami university. So it is specific to a school I had. It was a little bit of best way to set up, but it really is focused on, uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I, uh, I didn't come from a, I came from a very economically diverse, meaning underprivileged situation. Um, So I was fortunate to scrape my way into Miami, worked three jobs while I was there um, and, but for that, and my, my late mother's hard work wouldn't have gotten educated. And so I'm just passionate about, I, I think the biggest risk we have in entrepreneurship is underrepresentation. We need more entrepreneurs. We need more diversity entrepreneurship. And then we need uh, those that that pursue the path to stay healthy. So that's my real passion. Uh, the scholarship is specifically set up to help those that uh, fit in one of those categories, um, obtain the education, uh, but it's right now focused on Miami university. I hope to grow it over time.
0: Nice. Is that Miami, Florida?
1: Or is that Miami, Miami of Ohio. Ohio? Miami Ohio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miami of Ohio. The, I used to go and I used to always people say, gosh, you must, you must have enjoyed going to football games. I'm like, no, we never went. We just <laughs> sat, in, uh, sat in the dorm and watched Big Ten football. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a great school in Southern Ohio.
0: Yep, absolutely. I've actually been to Oxford, Ohio like eight times. I used to be a volunteer after college for my college fraternity, which was founded at Miami University yep. in Oxford, Ohio. And so I, I had to go to many board meetings uh, of, of such for the volunteer class that I was in. so
1: I know it yeah, well. great, great, great place to visit. but yeah, so so the book is really trying to help. and I would say there's each chapter, there's a specific formula called the shape formula that talks about uh, self-awareness, help, authenticity, persistence, and expectations. That's what I think are the five critical elements of mental tenacity. And then each chapter ends with what I call monkey minders specific suggestions, again, most of which I didn't put into practice, uh, but I've seen great entrepreneurs do that would hopefully give someone really specific and practical things to do to try and increase their their mental toughness. Sure.
0: Awesome. So, Mike, I I call this show Making Waves at Sea Level. Any advice for uh, executives or others who want to make some waves in their industry?
1: Wow, that is a wonderfully open-ended question. Um, I'm going to go to my I mean, I'm mean, i going to just plug the book, but I do think um, leadership is all about how you show up every day. And so consistently challenging myself. I had a day like this today where I did all the things that I'm, I'm quote unquote, supposed to do or like to do in the morning. And I found my energy level, my capacity to lead, my capacity to pay attention at an all time high. So I, I can I my, my personal advice is look at the things that make you the best possible person you can be. Find a way to make them repeatable in your life. And that discipline seems to be the biggest personal scale item that I can think of. Um, I'm jotting notes down to myself to do it again. But I think if you can find out where, what makes you, what gets you that mental strength and incorporate it in your life in a routine, to me, that's the the best advice that I give uh, to others and to myself as well.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you again for coming back to the podcast. Appreciate having you here and thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every show, if it wasn't for the audience, why would we do this? Uh, I have had the good fortune of of interviewing some really awesome people and we're going to keep this going. Come back every Tuesday and Thursday and do me a favor. If you like the podcast. Tell somebody about it. Yes, I want you to go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast love and leave one of those reviews, you know, five stars, love the podcast that every podcaster asks for, but more important, tell somebody because when I talk to somebody who listens to the show and I ask them, how in the world did you ever find my little podcast? They say it is because my boss, my neighbor, my friend, somebody told me I should check it out and and now I listen every time I'm in the car. So tell your friends, you never know, they might like it too. Uh, and make sure you come back because uh, in a couple days, we're going to interview somebody just as cool as Mike Smirklow. I know you're thinking, what? Where were you find that? But we will do it. But in the meantime, go out there, flex your business muscles, make sure that your career ladder is against the right wall. Don't climb a career ladder that's in the wrong place. And while you're out there, have some fun. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger.